0: Good morning to those on the east coast of the United States. Good afternoon to those uh, possibly in Europe or uh, Russia or elsewhere. Uh, this is the Kennan Institute's fifth event since the Wilson Center went virtual. I'm Jane Harmon, the President and CEO of the Wilson Center, and delighted to say that we're still seeing an excess of 250 RSVPs for today's discussion. During these unusual times, I'm encouraged to see that so many people share our desire for timely and critical analysis of Russia and its neighbors. Discussions like today's are the reason the Wilson Center has been recognized as number one in the world in regional expertise for the third year in a row. Today, we're talking about US-Russian relations. When a Russian plane touched down in New York, on April 1, full of medical equipment for the United States, something we desperately need, there was some confusion as to who was footing the bill. The ventilators, masks, and respirators were not a gift, but the U.S. reportedly paid a discounted price for them. What became clear to many, though, is that the delivery was a PR victory for the Kremlin. The outcome of President Trump's intervention in the Russian-Saudi oil price war was also a mixed bag. Last week, 23 countries made an unprecedented commitment to reducing the global oil supply by 13%. But the glut remains. And yesterday, US oil prices fell below zero for the first time ever. Don't worry, you still have to pay for gas at the gas station. Meanwhile, Russia is becoming more and more uh, enveloped in its own coronavirus crisis. In the past two days, its number of cases have soared by 10,000, with around 50,000 total. Vladimir Putin warned yesterday that the country still has not reached its peak. To help explain how the pandemic is shaping the U.S.-Russian relationship, we're joined by an excellent panel of experts phoning in from US, from the U.S., Russia, and the U.K. They will be introduced uh, by our very own uh, Dr. Matt Verjansky, who is the unmatched director of the Kennan Institute. Uh, And right now, I'd like to welcome Matt to moderate this program. Thank you, Matt.
1: Thank you very much, Jane. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everybody joining us virtually. It's uh, a real pleasure uh, to be able to continue to bring high quality discussions uh, like this one to all of you and to do so in a timely fashion. I'm very grateful. Uh, to Jane and my Wilson Center colleagues for making this possible, but in particular to our three speakers, which is um, a, a fantastic panel this uh, this time we have for you, uh, really running the gamut from uh, perspective from Russia uh, and from the United States, uh, as well as from Europe uh, in the middle uh, on this question of the U.S.-Russia relationship amid the current crisis and perhaps looking beyond it as well. In addition to what Jane said, I would note that uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship, uh, you know, it won't surprise anyone who hasn't been living under a rock for the last uh, five years, is in very, very serious trouble. And it has been uh, for that entire time. Arguably, uh, the roots of that trouble go back even farther. Um, But there were signs before this crisis that there may have been opportunities uh, to stabilize and perhaps even improve the relationship, for instance, uh, the impending 75th anniversary of the shared uh, U.S. and Soviet victory in World War II uh, was perhaps going to be an opportunity uh, for a high-level U.S.-Russian meeting in person. That now, of course, will not take place. Um, there, there was perhaps going to be an opportunity for the so-called P5 from the U.N. Security Council, which are also uh, the world's major nuclear powers, to come together, uh, perhaps to issue some kind of statement that would tamp down fears of a collapsing global arms control uh, regime, uh, and, and all of those things are now uh, indefinitely postponed. Um, and yet, uh, in addition to what Jane mentioned, the Russian uh, medical aid uh, plane load uh, that touched down in the United States, um, Presidents Trump and Putin have had an unprecedentedly uh, frequent uh, level of phone contact over the last several weeks. Uh, as far as we understand principally about energy prices and understandably so uh, given the situation that Jane described. Um, And looking more broadly in in history, uh, amidst crises and in particular in the aftermath of crises that have reached this kind of global scale, uh, economic, political, and certainly security crises, uh, it has historically, at least in the last century of human history, Uh, been Moscow and Washington that have played a central role in establishing uh, the norms and rules uh, that will govern the global system coming out of such crises. So I would pose the broad question for our panelists to consider, and they'll each open with their own take on on the the topic for today, uh, which is what will be, if any, the U.S. and Russian roles in the post-crisis global order? Will they have the capacity? Will they have the desire? What will be their strategic goals? Uh, what will they seek? And what will be the relationship between the two? But I, I put that out there as sort of a broad uh, background question. Now I'm going to introduce each speaker before they they offer a very brief uh, five to seven minute opening. Um, and I want to remind everybody listening that you can uh, ask questions in three different ways. Uh, you can email uh, Kenan at WilsonCenter.org. You can tweet at Kennan Institute, or you can comment on the Kennan Institute's Facebook page, and we will see all those questions in real time and they'll get to to me within minutes. Um, So we'll begin uh, from St. Petersburg uh, with my friend and colleague, uh, uh, Kennan Institute alumnus Ivan Kurila. He's a professor of history and international relations at the European University in St. Petersburg. He's organized workshops, published articles, and edited volumes on the use of history, historical memory, and historical politics uh, in Russia and the post-Soviet space. So, Ivan, I didn't mean to steal your thunder by referencing history. I'm sure uh, you'll correct the record, please. Yeah.
2: Okay, thank you, Matt. And thank you for inviting me for this timely discussion. Uh, you know, I would start with... Uh, suggesting to differentiate between several levels of uh, this Russian-American changes or Russian-American relations in this time of big changes. And uh, the level of uh, interaction between President Trump and President Putin is definitely the most visible. We see uh, this uh, telephone calls, we hear the you know, press conferences, and we, we study, we learn uh, what they are discussing. And this is certainly oil and uh, like gesture of the mutual help in the fighting coronavirus. But I would differentiate it or put it a little bit aside from the broader uh, broader uh, state of the Russian-American relations. And we all probably would agree that uh, Russian-American relations is in a very bad shape uh, for quite a long, long time already. And uh, it's not only about the presidents, it's about the... Uh, mis, um, misunderstanding is because of the uh, mutual jealous and because of the mutual uh, mistrust. And this is uh, something which can be changed because of the coronavirus. I think that uh, this is, you know, the epidemic, the pandemic uh, actually changed it, a little bit changed it already the way that like uh, ordinary Russians and ordinary Americans probably uh, see the international uh, the international relations as a whole. So I would say that uh, we have, uh, with all of this pandemic, we have um, kind of uh, opportunity, maybe not a big one, but an opportunity to improve uh, the you know the Russian-American relations on the level of uh, mutual mutual understanding and mutual trust. And I would. Uh, point uh, point out to one to domestic uh, situation in Russia. You know that Russia entered this pandemic uh, in the time of the domestic political crisis. You know when President Putin started to change the constitution and uh, uh, actually led to very uh, mixed uh, response from the the Russian population and from the elites in Russia. So Russia entered the uh, epidemics in the midst of the uh, political situation, which actually as many uh, analysts say uh, make putin 's power much less strong and much you know weaker and much you know he, he made himself much more vulnerable and so I would think that uh, speaking about the post coronavirus world we can uh, it 's a good time to start thinking about the uh, Post-Putin Russia and post uh, this regime uh, Russia. Okay, maybe this is a wishful thinking for me as a critical, uh, as a person who is much critical to the current Russian regime. But I, uh, I do think that uh, the time of the current, of you know, the regime which is uh, in power in Russia for 20 years already, uh, is coming to its end, and the coronavirus uh, crisis will may. Uh, you know, accelerate this uh, slide down of this, of this regime. So speaking about tomorrow, we speak not only about the new, uh, you know, new lines uh, in the international relations, new lines between the governments, but also about the new Russia. And this is something we should consider when we, when we are talking about this uh, pandemic uh, applying to Russia and applying
1: to Russian role in, in, uh, in American foreign policy. Okay, Thanks. great. Uh, I'll go next to Raj Menon, uh, who is the Anne and Bernard Spitzer Chair in International Relations at the Powell School at City College of New York, City University of New York. Um, He's also a senior research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia. Uh, He has been a fellow at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs, the New America Foundation, Carnegie Corporation. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, and of course the Kennan Institute of the Wilson Center. So Raj, we're pleased to have you. Please, uh, your perspective. Thanks very much, Matt, and thank you
3: for inviting me. I'll begin by saying that I rather doubt that the coronavirus itself will have much of an effect on how U.S.-Russian relations unfold because I think they have a kind of logic of their own. I don't think that's necessarily the view shared by all Note, you know this, Matt, that not long ago there was an exchange of phone calls between President Putin and President Trump, and there was a flurry of media speculation about whether this was a nefarious gambit by Mr. Mm -hmm. Putin, and so on. I think that was just so much heavy breathing, and it, uh, it was more panic than analysis. But it is emblematic of how it's become very difficult to have a sane conversation about Russia in the wake of the Ukraine crisis and with the advent of President Trump. Having said that, I think that the issues that are on the table for the United States and Russia now will, whenever this pandemic cloud is lifted from our heads, still be there. So in no particular order, the issues that have to be dealt with by both sides, either as adversaries or as, as uh, cooperating partners are the Ukraine crisis. The Minsk uh, agreement has yielded no agreement. I don't see anything down the line. But without any solution that is acceptable to Kiev, and that Moscow is willing to accept as well, we will not come out of what some people have called the new Cold War. I don't particularly like the term, but let's go with it. The second are two nuclear flashpoints, one in Iran, now that the agreement with Iran in 2015, the JCPOA has been uh, defenestrated by Mr. Trump. How will that be handled by the United States? And are the United States and Russia going to be adversaries or partners? Then, of course, there's North Korea. What happens to the nuclear program there? If there's a breakout, how will the United States react? In the the case of both Iran and North Korea, the U.S. has uh, a very strong interest, but so does Russia. Then there is the militarization of space, which hasn't gotten enough attention. To be very brief, what is happening is that a whole host of countries are developing anti-satellite weapons of a kinetic nature or non-kinetic nature, cyber warfare, electronic. I don't have the time to go into these various categories, but this is a very dangerous thing because in the event of a crisis when countries expect war, if they believe that they're going to be blinded by the adversary, there's an enormous temptation to take some sort of preemptive action. And then there is the question of what happens after the new START treaty expires in February. If it is not extended by another five years, for the first time since 1972 or thereabouts, we will have no arms control regulating strategic nuclear arms competition in the United States and uh, Russia. Now, if you add to that our departure from the INF and the possibility that new weapons such as hypersonic weapons will come online, that makes for a very bad mix. So to close this out, I think that the coronavirus has yet to play out full in Russia, I think it's gonna get a lot worse. But no matter which way it plays out, when the dust settles, which we hope will be soon, I rather doubt that there'll be much of a difference and the countries, two countries will have to pick up on the issues that I mentioned and perhaps some others.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Raj. Um, I think probably, accurate, but uh, certainly bleak. That said, it was bleak before we went in, into this crisis, so um, uh, it may be cockeyed optimism to look for a silver lining now. Uh, Oksana, uh, Oksana Antonenko uh, will uh, pick up the rear. Uh, she is uh, calling in from London and is the Cambridge. director of uh, Cambridge, sorry, uh, director of, the Glo- of global risk analysis at the Control Risks Group. Uh, she's also a global fellow with us at the Kennan Institute of the Wilson Center. Um, she focuses on analyzing political and security risks for senior decision makers in private and public sectors. And her work focuses on Europe, including Russia, Turkey, and Central Asia, as well as Africa and the Middle East. Oksana, please.
4: Yes. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, I think between these two arguments that we just heard, between yeah. Ivan, who was a bit more optimistic about the future and the change possible, and Rajan, who was uh, pessimistic, I mean, I think I come sort of somewhere in between, because I think clearly we're unlikely to see a major transformation of the relationship precisely for a kind of structural Uh, challenges that Rajan had uh, mentioned that I will also speak a little bit about in my uh, remarks. But I also think that uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic is going to be so transformational, uh, not only to the global... Um, health uh, uh, systems, but also, of course, to the global geopolitics, as well as for domestic politics in many countries around the world. So it is uh, probably um, uh, presumptuous of us to think that in any way, the international politics are going to return to normal Um, uh, as we've seen it before the pre-COVID. Although it is, of course, very early to say now how this transformation is going to take place. Uh, Indeed, we have seen um, a flurry of uh, uh, communication between Russia and the United States at the highest level. Um, I think five phone calls uh, were reported between President Putin and uh, uh, President Trump. Um, Yes, uh, we, we know very little actually from these phone calls what they were really about. There is not very much reading in the open domain that we can analyze, but from what we understand, not only the oil issues were discussed, but also, of course, the issues of strategic stability and arms control were very much on the agenda as well. Um, so it is very interesting for me that uh, the COVID pandemic um, uh, playing out in both United States and Russia uh, in, uh, in sort of similar ways in many ways, Uh, Both uh, President Trump and, of course, President Putin are finding themselves uh, facing that pandemic uh, in a very challenging political time for, for both of them. Uh, President Trump, of course, facing the elections in November and President Putin were planning to um, conduct a referendum which would have uh, given him an option of staying for another two terms in power, but this referendum has now been postponed till later on uh, in the year. Um, secondly, of course, in both, case, both cases in Russia and the United States, we see the COVID situation deteriorating. Um, uh, quite rapidly and uh, uh, the population generally and political elites as well, um, are increasingly mistrusting the capacity of the leadership um, to manage the situation well going forward. And of course we see the tensions between the regional authorities, the regional governors and the central authority, which of course in the United States is quite a normal democratic process, although perhaps not as smooth as it usually is. But in Russia, it is a very new development Uh, in the Russian domestic politics, where basically the role of governors uh, until recently had been very much to remain loyal to President Putin and to be kind of part of this vertical of power. And we're now seeing increasingly a number of governors are taking the central role and playing the key role in uh, uh, providing this kind of response to COVID. And of course, that is transforming uh, the politics in Russia and perhaps creating new potential legitimate leaders for the post-COVID era. So I think that's something to watch. And of course, in the United States, we're also going to see quite a major shift, I think, in domestic politics leading to the uh, elections in November, where there's much more uncertainty about the outcome today than it was before COVID. Um, uh, The third issue, of course, is that both United States and Russia before the COVID pandemic have been uh, uh, quite skeptical about the global response to international issues and really very much championed their sort of sovereignty and the preference for unilateral action and, and, and their own kind of uh, approach to global politics. You know, and I think they both had to shift their um, priorities and now increasingly look for cooperation and global response, you know, not only uh, within the context of uh, the uh, UN system and the World Health Organization, but also in OPEC plus agreement, which we Uh, mentioned before, you know, where President Trump had played a very key role, something which the United States has never been supportive of, this kind of cartel agreements on managing the oil price, had now changed uh, quite dramatically, where Trump himself had played a key role of making that agreement happen uh, just a few days ago. And of course, you know, within G20, we also now see a flurry of activity around this uh, you know, issue of managing the debt sustainability and coming up with a more global response. So again, you know, quite interesting parallels here. And I think the final issue, which I want to, to, to flag here is that to what extent we are going to see, you know, some sort of change uh, in the multilateral uh, uh, approach to you know managing the key strategic uh, issues going forward. You know, in particular, of course, the arms control. And I here agree completely with Rajan that the issue of uh, extension of or or most likely non-extension of the START treaty b- beyond February 2021 is really posing a fundamental challenge to the strategic stability and the global um, uh, global nuclear. Uh, safety and, and non-proliferation regime. So whether we're going to see as a result of the current sort of changes in the global order, you know, real uh, momentum being built up towards multilateralizing the strategic arms control process, uh, and that will depend to a large extent how the relationship between the United States and China is going to evolve. And of course, Russia is not a key player in this relationship, but could become Quite important beneficiary if this relationship either going to improve dramatically and therefore multilateral arms control will be much more possible or indeed deteriorate dramatically where I think deterioration of the u s china relationship can offer a new opportunity for perhaps strengthening u s russia dialogue you know I will leave it here Thank
1: you all very much I think uh, three clearly distinct takes on where we are with the current crisis and just a few thoughts uh, to my broader question uh, about the future. And I think that's what I want to go to first. Um, Let me say we've we've had some good questions come in already. Uh, Those who wish to ask, uh, again, you can email Kenan at WilsonCenter.org, tweet to at Kenan Institute or comment on our Facebook page. Um, But the the way I want to approach this kind of big future question that that each of you touched on in some degree is is with the question of capacity. Um, To some extent, it seems like the the policies and the relationships that we have seen evolve over the past decade have been premised on a relatively shared understanding of capacity. That is to say, uh, take Russia, China, and the United States, three principal actors on the global stage you know, they have all acknowledged up to now that the United States is the preponderant actor, is the most powerful actor economically, militarily, uh, politically, diplomatically. Um, Whether that remains the case coming out of the crisis or whether the United States power or not, relative behemoth or not, still has the capacity to exercise that power, to direct it, seems to me a question that is going to shape U.S. policy and then the policy responses of Russia and China. But arguably for Russia as well, um, you know, much of Russian policy has been premised on, for example, using energy as a coercive tool. Uh, Does that mean anything uh, with an oil price that is, you know, wherever it ends up, uh, clearly in much lower territory than we have ever seen in the modern era? Um, and similarly, uh, premised on the idea that there really are no meaningful costs for Russia. That's not to say for others, but for Russia uh, to destabilizing Western democratic politics, to mucking around with the global system uh, led by the United States, as we've understood it to be, that, that there are only really benefits to be had. I mean, does Russia come out of this crisis convinced that all of that is still true and that these are still plausible approaches to the world? And then there's the China question, right? Which is, you know, and, and I recognize none of us are, are making a detailed study of China's domestic order. Uh, the Kissinger Institute and the Asia Program here at the Wilson Center do that and have had great events on it. But, you know, fundamentally, does China come out of this crisis feeling its oats in every dimension? Or does it come out somewhat chastened, at least with respect to relations with other major powers like the United States and Russia? So, you know, I'd offer each of you a minute or two to take a, a swipe at that kind of big future question, and then I'm gonna to go to our list of, of questions from the audience. Who'd like to take a first uh, a first
3: stab? I'll give it a shot. Please, Raj. Matt, uh, uh, so let me take the Russia slice of this because there isn't time to take the other two slices. Uh, I rather doubt that Russia will come out of this with more capacity. So at the moment, they have something like 40, 47,800 infections, last, last night's figures. And what 405 deaths. But the coronavirus are Russia and the mayor of Moscow, Savyanin, has already said that that is an undercount. And even President Putin has become more alarmist. Now, I will just remind you that on March 7th, Russia had seven cases. At the end of March, it had below 600 cases. And now we're at 47,000. On April 12th, in one day, they reported 6,060 new cases. So, if unemployment grows, and if this epidemic, which is now largely centered in the Moscow region—about two-thirds of the cases are in Moscow—spreads out, and it is, because we're already getting reports from Ekaterinburg, Bashkortostan, and the Komi Republic, this is going to take a very large toll on Russia's reserves. Now they have very impressive reserves—about six hundred sixty billion, more than their public debt for the first time. They have a national wealth fund of about one hundred fifty thousand dollars, one hundred fifty billion (laughs) dollars, excuse me. But if you have the ranks of the Russian labor force becoming more and more unemployed, companies in trouble with the oil prices having gone down. So Brent crude went from about 56 about three weeks ago to now about 26. You know better than I do that a very substantial portion of Russia's budget, about 40% depends on oil revenues. So we, the United States won't come out of the strong. So I'm not saying that's the case. China won't come out of it strong. Everybody will be depleted. But the argument that somehow Russia will be walking around with seven lead boots because it's remained relatively unscathed, I just don't buy it. I think the pandemic has not yet played out. I don't really trust the official numbers. I think when the spread goes out of Moscow to places that are much less equipped in terms of medical staff and hospital beds, the numbers are going to skyrocket. And with that, the economic costs.
1: Ron, uh, I'm curious, do you see it the same way? Do you see, setting aside uh the regime strength i mean i think we got your sort of cockeyed optimism about that do you see russia's capacity being dramatically weakened based on what is happening around you now or uh is, is this going to be a story of russian resiliency okay
2: let me can can i uh Please. yeah thanks uh, you know let me start a little bit with American side. You asked, you asked if uh, American capacity will is is deteriorating or you know sliding down, and and I would say, okay, this may be a, a paradoxical uh, idea, but I think that uh, American capacity is you know, not only with Trump, but for for some decades already is getting on the relative terms, uh, less and less, uh, you know, the United States is getting less and less powerful, both in militarily and economically. Uh, But uh, paradoxically, uh, it is not in the eyes of the Russian leadership. I mean, for Putin, the United States is and was and will be uh, the most powerful country in the world. And most of the foreign policy Putin uh, is planning and doing is a, big chess game vis-a-vis the United States. He does not pay much attention to Europe. Okay, he pays attention to China, of course, but I I guess that the United States is a major player for for Russia. And getting back to American uh, side, you know, it looks like American capacity uh, is, um, uh, you know, is perceived as uh, deteriorating in the eyes, first of all, in the eyes of American allies in the eyes of Europeans, in the eyes of those who uh, had a long history of relying on American power uh, to, to, to solve many security problems and economic problems. And now they are looking on the United States uh, with, you know, uh, with some suspicion. And paradoxically, uh, the Ru- Russia, and probably in Trump's eyes. Of course, I do not uh, know what Trump is thinking about Russia or Putin is thinking, but it looks like uh, for Trump, uh, improving the relations with Russia is a way to, you know, to return American uh, capacity. You know, the return to the old system of international relations, okay, not the, to the Cold War as it was, but to something uh, where the, Russia is a major adversary can uh, make a deal with you, and that actually makes American importance in the world uh, much more visible. And this is something that can be uh, considered as a way to return, or at least uh, return the perception of American capacity in the eyes of American allies. So this is
1: my take on here. Great point. Oksana, please.
4: Yes. Okay. Well, I'll try to cover all three but very quickly. So on the Russian side, I mean, I agree with um, uh, Rajan that, uh, you know, Russia is uh, unlikely to come out of this crisis with uh, higher capacity. In fact, you know, I think uh, if we look at the current trajectory uh, where Russia is uh, on, on the curve of the COVID cases. Clearly it is uh, uh, on a similar trajectory as uh, many of the uh, major European countries that have suffered uh, 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 major consequences of the pandemic, like Italy and Spain. So we are likely to expect many more cases. And of course, I also agree that perhaps some of the data that we hear from Russia cannot be fully trusted, particularly outside of Moscow, and, and and it is likely that this uh, you know health crisis is going to be very substantial for Russia. But I think it is also important that so far Russia has been very slow in coming up with very strong uh, package of measures which can help and reassure its own um, uh, you know economy and its own you know businesses. Um, even though it has this impressive. Uh, Uh, currency reserve and and, and welfare fund, but it has not put it to use. And I think perhaps the authorities and President Putin himself has underestimated the extent with which, you know, the speed with which the, you know, Russian economy is going to uh, start feeling the the heat from that. And of course, the collapse in oil price, which, uh, you know, of course, the euros are now selling uh, well below brand prices, you know, already below $20 and and likely to go substantially lower in in the months ahead, as we continue to see very low oil demand, um, I think uh, uh, is going to really struggle to reassure the population, and we are likely to see you know, deterioration and his approval ratings already. So I think his domestic capacity will be weakened. You know, it is also important to mention that his regional capacity is going to be weakened because before this COVID uh, uh, epidemic, you know, we have seen some momentum behind at least the Eurasian economic union integration. There's been some cooperation going on. And now a lot of those gains really are being uh, quickly dismantled. You know, we've seen uh, a rapid deterioration in the relationship between Russia and Belarus. Uh, of course, many of the Central Asian migrants who came to Russia as a result of the Eurasian Economic Union are now being left without uh, healthcare, uh, uh, credible sort of support for their healthcare needs, and that is likely to um, deteriorate relationship with Central Asian states if those communities are going to be, you know, suffering from a uh, uh, large impact of COVID uh, uh, cases. Um, so the regional uh, footprint will be weakened. And of course, globally as well. I mean, we have really not seen very uh, clear um, uh, policy from Russia of how to manage, you know, the consequences of the pandemic and its global response. I mean, he, Russia's decision to uh, withdraw from the original OPEC plus agreement, uh, you know, in March, on March six, has been a major misjudgment, you know, something which Russia has to back off, had, had to back off from, you know, in a pretty humiliating um, uh, retreat for President Putin and then seek uh, help from President Trump to, to find a new deal with, with, with the Saudis. On the US side, I agree with Ivan, although the credibility of United States has been weakened in the eyes of the Europeans, there is no doubt about it, but the American democracy has this, you know, unique feature that it can actually uh, reload itself, you know, once we have the elections and perhaps a new beginning and, and, and there is at least a a confidence that within the United States, there will be, um, uh, you know, capacity to manage many of those challenges, you know, within the political system. And most importantly, within the financial um, capacity uh, of United States to provide, you know, necessary support for businesses. And of course, uh, to mitigate very high unemployment rates that we are seeing now in the United States. In China, however, I think China is clearly is going to come out of this crisis strongest. You know, it is already in the face of recovery, although, of course, we cannot rule out the second wave. But so far, we have not seen any credible um, uh, indications that a massive second wave is likely. And, and, you know, in China, of course, uh, is going to see a major economic slowdown, but perhaps not. You know, uh, a recession, and it will able to start recovery already in the second half of this year, as both Russia and United States are likely to remain in recession at that time. So, to what extent China will be prepared to convert it, so its economic uh, uh, sort of windfall from being the first one to enter reco- recovery into then uh, assuming a greater role in global governance? And here, the issue of debt sustainability is particularly important because China uh, is now holding an absolutely crucial role uh, in uh, ensuring that some of the African countries, and indeed Central Asian countries, who now own an enormous amount of debt to China, partly as a result of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, you know, are offered uh, a credible and sustainable and long-term you know, debt relief. Uh, 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 offering from China. If China does not step up to the brink on that and continues to exert pressure, I think it can uh, rapidly you know, lose credibility and its uh, own standing in the world is going to diminish.
1: Well, uh, thank you, all three of you. Um, it, it, it uh, There are no shortage of risks in the landscape for the capacity of all three major actors, and yet it does sound like, in the land of the blind, uh, the relative king, or at least, uh, the the one with the most advantageous position may be China. Um, that said, uh, I'm I'm always reminded of uh, you know Mark Twain's famous line: "Rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated." Uh, when people write off Russia's resiliency, uh, that that alliteration is always present in my mind. Um, but let me pick up uh, for a second with a question from uh, Ken A. Detner from the Japan Bank for International Cooperation. Uh, who asks about Russia and China, uh, what are the possible areas for their cooperation, in particular uh, with the uh, pervasive surveillance technology that we've seen in China, um, uh, 5G infrastructure, much debated, um, and also in uh, kind of responding to and countering the U.S. narrative response. Do you see much in the way of Russia-China opportunity, or does The distrust and the gap in interest between the two of them prevent such a future.
3: So the the mistrust hasn't prevented them from cooperating. There are a a variety of ways in which they do so. Russian arms deals to China. They've started declining significantly from about 2008, but they've picked up again with the sale of the SU-35 and and the S-400. I don't know if it'll reach the levels that it did at its high point. So that's one. Second are the two pipelines, ESPO, which uh, transmits uh, crude oil, and uh, Paro Siberia, which uh, transmits uh, natural gas. Those are in place. However, the decline of prices and the contraction of the global economy will have a very, very significant effect. They will broadly, I think, uh, view the world as one in which they want to prevent uh, the United States from throwing its weight around. They both made clear that they're not in favor of a unipolar world. But my fear about this, Matt, is that everybody is going to take a hit. The question is who takes the least bad hit? And everyone, if all three countries, including Europe, are looking inward, are there things that are gonna happen out there which would have been conceivably better managed had they had more capacity to look outward, that are going to be much more vexing. And as a result of the economic contraction, will the differences between them in dealing with these problems become much worse? I have to say, I'm I'm not an economist on China, but I'm rather less optimistic about uh, the Chinese economy. It is true that many of their fundamentals are looking good, but the growth numbers are not looking good by their own admission. But if you have effective demand plummeting in Europe, in the United States, in Southeast Asia, China has become more and more an ex, uh, export-driven economy. So it's like a scorpion in a bottle with two or three other scorpions. And so what happens out there cannot um, but affect China, supply chain interruptions, export declines, and so on. And the interesting thing about China is, you know, we've seen this polity have, by their uh, accounting, about a 7 to 8% average growth rate since 1978. I don't know any economy that's replicated that in the modern era, but we've never seen the political system operate at, say, 4% growth or 3% growth. So we don't know. This is a stress test for all of us, for the United States, for China, for Russia, and they will all be tested in different ways. And at the end of it, what happens and who comes out on top or who comes out below, I think way early to say, I think what will happen is that all of them Will have their capacity diminished, and all of them will be perforce uh, forced to look inward because there are huge problems to clean up.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um- okay.
0: Okay. Can I get ahead add yeah. just
4: very quickly on this? You know, just to say that you know, so far, you know, China and Russia were able to manage some of the very delicate uh, issues in their bilateral relationship because initially, when COVID cases initially started coming into Russia via China, and that is before, of course, the European uh, flights, you know, brought some of the COVID cases from Europe. But you know, initially, the cases, the first cases, were coming into the far East from China, and Russia closed down the borders. You know, they managed to, to, um, you know. Do that in in a way which didn't damage the relationship uh, you know now of course we see uh, the cases traveling in the opposite direction so the second the current uh, upsurge in cases uh, in china uh, is really coming from uh, many chinese uh, Uh, citizens who are returning from Russia to China. And here again, there is very delicate uh, bilateral relationship that they had to manage. You know, uh, Rajan uh, mentioned power of Siberia. In fact, the power of Siberia, which was opened just a few months ago by you know, President Putin and and President Xi, you know, in a a great, you know, pomp and ceremony had to be suspended um, uh, kind of officially uh, for technical uh, reasons, to kind of technical servicing, although it is very strange to see technical servicing um, uh, just a few months after the launch. But in reality, it's because China is no longer, um, uh, uh, was no longer able and willing to purchase Russian gas in the current Plummeting uh, demand environment, and and a similar uh, situation is going to be with Russian oil. So, so we are going to see a lot of kind of expectations about the uh, kind of a bringing the bilateral relationship more to the even keel by expanding the economic relationship, perhaps being, you know, rolled back and, and Russia becoming more and more dependent on China, particularly for technology, which is absolutely crucial now for, you know, expanding this surveillance, which is likely to become a feature of all of our lives, but particularly, of course, in countries like Russia and China. And the more Russia is linked to China via the technology and the 5G, etc., the less and less, uh, Russia is capable to pursue its own ambition for the so-called sovereign internet and becoming more and more uh, clustered together with China because after COVID, it is clear that the world is going to be much more divided uh, along the technology line. So Europeans will be much less willing to, you know, import uh, some of the Chinese technology while Russia perhaps will be locked up with China much more and therefore more distant from the West in a way. Mm
2: -hmm. Ivan, please. Uh, you know, I, I I want to add something about the perceptions, uh, you know, uh, and get get back to COVID uh, epidemic because because uh, what we saw just weeks ago uh, in 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 the Russian uh, public opinion in the Russian discussions discourse was that okay Chinese example was a better one than U- European because China was right. a authoritarian countries that efficiently lock down everybody and uh, get rid of of the epidemic very quickly, but now we see how dramatically the uh, situation and the public opinion is changing because people say that they're lying, that it was not a real statistic, that China did not. And you see this absurd of anti-Chinese mood in the Russian uh, social networks. And That is actually uh, uh, the representation, I think, of the bigger fear of China coming to Russia in terms of uh, Chinese uh, ways of governments, uh, governance, all of this uh, you know, uh, digital uh, concentration camp, as they call it, uh, or uh, as a Chinese uh, influence in the politics. And that's uh, something which actually COVID made all of this uh, fear such much more uh, spread and much more, I would say, legitimate in the eyes of of, of of the Russian public opinion. That this is we should not underestimate this public opinion, uh, which is growing anti-Chinese right now. Thanks. I,
1: I want to. I just want to say first of all. Uh, The audience has submitted some phenomenal questions. The tragedy of receiving all of them at once electronically is that it is even more frustrating to try to get all of them in. So what I'm going to do is bring it back to this core question of the bilateral relationship between the United States and Russia. Um, uh, There's a question from Susan Bauer, who's a legislative fellow uh, in uh, the office of Senator Chris Coons, um, who asks essentially. Uh, given that uh, even if a major change in the relationship uh, might not be in the offing, COVID provides uh, at least an opportunity to marginally improve things, uh, the opening that the crisis uh, provides. Um, in particular, given what Yvonne said, uh, is, is there some kind of opportunity in the offing for improved uh, U.S.-Russia relations? Uh, and, and related to that, and I, I would invite uh, in particular uh, Oksana and Raj to comment on these issues. Um, Are we likely to see any change in the policy from the U.S. side with respect to sanctions and isolation? And are we likely to see any change in the Russian uh, apparent ongoing hostile, low-intensity cyber campaign? So, Ivan, I would go to you first. Uh, What does the opportunity look like? Can it go anywhere?
2: Well, I do think, you know, we can... We can mistrust or don't like uh, President Putin or President Trump, but uh, what we see that both presidents actually are eager to make the relations better. Okay, maybe for their personal political gains, but they are actually the major forces uh, in in this uh, of possible Russian-American rapprochement. And this is actually I cannot rule out that uh, even during the coronavirus outbreak or after it immediately uh, the. They will finally make a summit or sign some big treaty. I cannot even rule out the signing of a new START, which is. Yeah, I agree that it's uh, it's looking less and less uh, possible. But still, I could not 100% sure that it's uh, it will not happen, and that's something that they both want to do for domestic political reasons, for improving their you know standing uh, international or domestic. But again this is a opportunity and we see that Trump for okay three more than three years already in office continuously pushing this agenda of rapprochement with Russia and Putin on his own way is trying to do that and this is uh, this rapprochement can be uh, you know evaluated or assessed uh, uh differently from, you know, uh, aside from the uh, question of the sanctions, because I, I think both sides understand that the sanctions is with us for years to come. And especially the sanctions which were uh, announced by the United States Congress, like everybody in Russia remember Jackson vinick and everybody understand that the sanctions is for years and maybe decades. But uh, they can put it aside and make some Breakthroughs, uh, at least PR breakthroughs, or maybe real ones in the strategic arms uh, talks, or you know they make uh, form a new agenda around the coronavirus, around, around the world health or world, uh, you know fighting the diseases, and this is something they probably will work together. And this is my way, my thinking about the major driving force behind this possibility of Russian-American uh, rapprochement. and in the current situation. Of course, I'm not speaking now about the future Russia, like Russia after Putin, but again, with Putin and America with Trump can do some something together.
1: Uh, Oksana?
4: Yes. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that in uh, you know, a no improvement, no meaningful improvement in relationship really is possible until, you know, in, Three main issues have to be addressed you know the first one, of course, is Ukraine, something which Rajan mentioned, but clearly, yes, maybe one can be skeptical about the um, uh, you know, current uh, uh, sort of scope of uh, very sort of wide scope of u s sanctions, but clearly you know no sanctions will be. Uh, changed unless we see some sort of uh, uh, progress on the Minsk agreements but most importantly more generally you know in in conflict in Donbass and settling the situation there and and so far we have seen that this COVID crisis unfortunately have not really offered any opportunities for improvement there on the ground but in fact things are perhaps even set back a little bit because the the kind of the momentum behind the normandy process which was there before the COVID uh, um, uh, pandemic uh, has really kind of died out, and and we are not seeing very much progress towards uh, uh, you know uh, uh, improving this relationship and bringing some more momentum for um, Russia's in, involvement in this new Ukraine. The second issue, what Matt mentioned about the um, uh, cyber uh, low-intensity cyber warfare, we do see you know over the last uh, couple of months you know continuing increase in the number of cyber attacks uh, originating from the Russian side. And, and, and that is, of course, not just uh, the state actors, but perhaps non-state actors, but clearly this is something which is a big concern, not only for the United States, but for many European countries as well, and something which needs to be uh, brought under control. And then the final issue, of course, is this whole issue of information warfare. And we, of course, as we approach uh, the elections in the United States, I think the big question mark now, what role will Russia play here? Will Russia decide to kind of follow um, uh, its uh, uh, experience from the midterm elections where it's dialed down quite a lot, its information interference in the U.S. uh, electoral process, or will it actually return back to the 2016 reality where in a, you know, more, perhaps more divisive and more unstable environment in the United States, Russia will try to play a role, a negative role, something which, of course, is going to accelerate sanctions again. And this is something which needs to be thought through already now, you know, because clearly it is an opportunity to move the relationship forward, but there is also an opportunity for this relationship to deteriorate again.
1: Raj?
3: So I think the question was, does COVID provide an opportunity for the two to cooperate?
1: I have a hard time and, and in particular, uh, if the policies of the two sides, of the, at least characteristic, uh, sanctions and isolation from the U.S. side and then kind of low intensity asymmetric destabilization from the Russian side, if you anticipate any change in those, I mean, you said the drivers won't change, but the, right. but the tactics.
3: So, uh, yeah, I understand. So very quickly, I think COVID per se doesn't provide any opportunity for cooperation as a technical medical issue. If, if anything, what I see the world doing is engaging in zero-sum strategy. There's a blame game going on. The US intercepted some shipments of medical equipment that was supposed to go to Germany. Germany was upset. The EU is pulling apart at the seams on this particular issue. So I don't really see the kind of cooperation globally, and I don't expect it to replicate itself in the US-Russia relationship. On sanctions, I think in the midst of all this, the bandwidth of the administration, even if it wanted to lift sanctions, is not going to allow it. I don't see any enthusiasm in either party, Democratic or the GOP, for doing this. So I think that's a non-starter. It very much is connected to Ukraine. Mr. Putin would really dearly like to have the sanctions lifted, lifted. no matter that the Russians have done some workarounds, they've done some non-dollar trade with the Chinese, they've adapted in the area of agriculture. But every trip I take there, Uh, what I hear from friends I trust is that the sanctions are having a huge bite. The question is, from since 2014 to the present, there's been no indication that the sanctions have made Russia's policy fundamentally shift in Ukraine. Will the pressure exerted by the COVID virus make them even more eager to get off from under sanctions? And if so, how far will their position move on the key issue of Ukraine? I don't know the answer, but that's something very, to watch very closely.
1: Great, look, we uh, have got just five minutes left and uh, as I understand, one of the disciplines of hosting Zoom events is that uh, unlike live physical events, they actually cut you off. Um, So what I'll try to do is, there are three more questions I wanna get in, uh, but maybe if each of you can take each one in a minute or so, uh, then we'll we'll finish just on time. Um, The first is from Michael Waller and I'd like to throw this to you, Yvonne, um, he asks how you see the respective post-COVID narratives from the U.S. and Russia, um, in particular, the narrative of fault. Uh, Raj mentioned that. I think each of you in, in some way or other has mentioned that. Who started it, uh, how effective the government was, uh, response was, uh, and how it should be viewed relative to the responses of other sides and the sort of heroic or not narrative of citizens stepping up, uh, local leaders, NGOs, et cetera. Uh, how do you see the two narratives in comparison? Mm-hmm. very okay. quickly if you can.
2: A very interesting question. Yeah, I would say will it will depend. It will depend because the narrative uh, usually usually constructed for a political aims. And uh, I would, uh, one one possibility is the narrative will be uh, like unifying narrative like uh, the humankind or both Russia and the United States face the common enemy. It was like the Second World War when we fought against uh, Nazi Germany and now we have uh, we are fought against uh, COVID virus and all of these health problems. That's very possible narrative, and they already started to construct it. All of these planes flying uh, from from Moscow to to New York and back. It's about that. It's about the common, uh, you know, c- common start of that. But uh, if uh, the political uh, agenda of tomorrow will be different, if we'll get back to the mutual accusations and you. Type of a Cold War, it's maybe the possibility. I, I, cannot, I cannot rule out the possibility of the creation of narrative that uh, all of this virus was artificially created, I don't know, somewhere in American laboratories or maybe in Chinese laboratories, depending on who will be the major threat tomorrow. So it's, I cannot rule, rule out this conspiracy theory uh, pro, you know, promoted by, well, not, maybe not by Kremlin, but somebody uh, influential in somebody's visible. So we will see, but the narrative will be constructed out of tomorrow's agenda.
1: Great. Uh, Oksana, I want to ask you, since you focus on the post-Soviet space, uh, Yalheny Pragerman from uh, the Minsk Dialogue in Belarus uh, asks, how actively will the U.S. be engaged in the post-Soviet space after the pandemic? Do you think there's bandwidth for that?
4: Well, I think for the time being, clearly there will not be uh, any bandwidth for anything, you know, foreign policy-related, you know, uh, uh, in the United States, as just as in many other countries around the world. But clearly, you know, I agree here to some extent with Ivan that, uh, you know. The, the decision to engage uh, and how to engage and when to engage will much depend on, um, you know, who we, who are we going to see um, uh, in the White House, you know, after November and what kind of global agenda this person is going to set forward. If we're still going to see President Trump there, I think the legacy of the impeachment um, and the kind of impact uh, that it had on, Um, on him and and his advisors perhaps will prevent him from taking a more active role, uh, at least in relationship to Ukraine policy and perhaps in the former Soviet Union uh, as well. If we're going to see change in administration, perhaps we're going to see a new beginning. But for the time being, it is uh, very hard to to judge.
1: I'll end with you, a very pointed question from Cameron Johnson on Facebook. Have the benefits of Trump's first term outweighed the costs from the Kremlin's perspective? What do you think?
3: Well, I think they expected more, and that because of the baggage that he carries vis vis Russia, he could not deliver it. Can I just say a word, Matt, on this post-Soviet space business? Yes. I find it humorous uh, that the question is raised. It's a good question, but I think the toll ha- here has been so devastating. 25 million people already finding for unemployment. Highest unemployment rates since the Great Depression. Projections that our economy contract by a third. So I hope we focus on the present American space, not any post space anywhere else. And I think that's that will be the imperative of all of these countries.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think people around the world, as much as Americans themselves, will be asking that question of what will be the American focus, but by the same token, they'll be asking it uh, about China as well, and to some extent Russia. And you've all helped us with great insights uh, into all of those perspectives. Uh, I'm very grateful to you, and I'm grateful to our audience, and I apologize to the many, many of you uh, who had fantastic questions that I couldn't get to. Um, this is This is all uh, as it is for for all of us, uh, still sort of new, and uh, I'm sure we'll we'll have another bite of the apple. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks to Jane and the Wilson Center team for hosting, uh, and thanks especially to our three speakers. So for now, thank you. signing off on Zoom. Bye-bye, thank you. Bye bye,
4: everyone. Bye.